Nadia Shadlow was the U.S. National Security Advisor for Strategy in the previous administration. In that capacity, she led the drafting and publication of the 2017 National Security Strategy of the United States. She's also served in the Defense Department and with the Smith Richardson Foundation, identifying strategic issues that warranted further attention from the American policy community. She's currently a senior fellow at Hudson Institute and a co-chair of the Hamilton Commission on Securing America's National Security Innovation Base. She conducts research and analysis on a range of issues at the intersection of strategy, national security, and technology. She's the author of War and the Art of Governance, Consolidating Combat, Success, and the Political Victory, not a task the U.S. has managed well in recent years, or so it seems to me. I'm Cliff May, and I've been reading what Dr. Shava writes for a rather long time. And some of her recent articles have made me particularly eager to talk with her. So I really should have invited her to a fancy dinner, but then you wouldn't get to be part of the conversation. And I like having you here on Foreign Policy. Dr. Shadler, welcome to Foreign Policy. Thanks so much, Cliff. Um, I really appreciate it. Although I think I actually really would have appreciated a fancy dinner too. Well, you know <laughs> so what? I'll forgive in the, you. In the new year, this is the open invitation. It's public, so you can sue me if you don't get it. You okay. tell me when lunch or dinner, any place you want in the Washington D.C. area, it's on me. Okay, so perfect. Get, I will okay? definitely follow up. Thank you. Okay, we think about where you want to eat. You know what? Start. You're not going to like this, but start by telling us just a little bit about yourself, like where you grew up. And when you were a little girl, did you play with armored personnel carriers and toy <laughs> tanks? And did you always want to be a national security strategist and, and wonk? Is that was that your dream? No, not not at all. I mean, I think that, you know, my career has been there's just been a lot of serendipity. I always had an international focus because um, my mom is Italian. Uh, we spent a lot of time in Italy. So I Ooh, wonderful place going there. Yeah, I mean, very. My son was posted there, the 173rd Airborne in Vicenza. In Vicenza. Oh, wow. Wonderful. wonderful. Part, yeah. So I was really fortunate. We would go in the summers and get to know um, my cousins and relatives, uh, speak a little bit of Italian, although don't don't test me on that. Um, <laughs> But do, do cook Italian and enjoy cooking and eating. And what um, part of Italy? I'm just curious to know. Because um, uh, Italy is very different, right? From- yeah. Um, she's from sort of central Italy, Abruzzo. Okay. She's across across the region, sort of across from Rome. So if you look at a map and look at Rome and go across, there's a bigger city called Pescara, which is um, a city that was actually bombed a lot during World War II. So it was rebuilt mm-hmm. in that I wouldn't say, you know, no offense, but Pescara is not itself the most charming city. I mean, there are parts of it that are, but it, a lot of it was rebuilt in, in the 60s and 70s and that sort of style. But there are a lot of beautiful hill towns around that region, mm. um, and it's on the Adriatic. So mm. so very nice and, you know, delicious cooking. Abruzzo is known, like all regions of Italy, for its specialties, and Italians take that very, very seriously, uh, which I have learned to do do myself. So in that sense, I am a bit of a food snob. <laughs> Meaning You've got to keep that in mind when we decide where to go. No, exactly. Back, <laughs> back to the meal. Exactly. Um, so I, I grew up with that international focus, um, and that had relevance because then when I went to college, I thought it would be interesting to sort of broaden myself a little bit. And I thought, let's let's take Russian. You know, why not? I had an exposure to the Latin languages, Italian and French. But I thought it would be really interesting to study Russian. I also, uh, my mom is a big reader. I was also exposed to Russian authors, uh, mm. you know, as a student in high school. I, I loved them. I enjoyed reading Russian literature. 
Um, I never managed to read Russian literature in Russian because my struggle with the Russian language was was quite <laughs> quite quite acute. I mean, it was the bane of my existence. I am not one of those foreign service, you know, language level five people. Trust me. <laughs> I I understand, but but this we have discuss not here. We'll discuss because you know I'm I'm an old Russianist too. I was an exchange student in the Soviet Union. Many, many oh, wow. years ago. I was I actually know. at Leningrad State University. Danielle, our producer, knows this. At the same time, Putin was there. Wow. I did so, not know that. That's really yeah. super. And I tell Danielle, I don't, you know, uh, did I did I get to know him? Hard to say. I got drunk with a lot of guys named Vladimir. So it's possible. Wow. That's that's anyway, really interesting. More later, more later. Yeah. Leningrad yeah. State University. Rah, 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 go Reds. I've done that joke before, but uh, I had I had less, you know, less uh, interesting stories to tell. Just basically, um, you know, having very strict Russian uh, t- teachers in, in my uh, small group where I went to school, constantly berating me for not knowing, you know, my infinitives and 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 cases as well as extensions, <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, right, right, and a proper <laughs> accent. Not a right, exactly. Americansky accent, but yes, but. yes, exactly. It was just, but I mean, <laughs> still, it's it's a beautiful language when spoken yes. well. I don't speak it well. Um, so through that, at that time, career choices were, you know, do something with Russian, um, yeah. and, and the options then sort of led to that arms control. You know, during the Soviet Union, Cold War arms control, kind of post Cold War period, understanding what was happening. Well, that wasn't post Cold War period yet; it was still um, before 1991. But where were you in graduate school, or where were you in college? I went to Cornell undergraduate. Okay. And then from there, I ended up going to SICE uh, to get yeah, my master's, right. mainly because I didn't really know what I was going to do. And I was fortunate and was able to go to get my master's degree at the time. So again, it wasn't a calculated sense of uh, knowing exactly what I wanted to do. And then I think a pivotal point really was just at that point, uh, they have these uh, fellowship internship programs that allow you to work in different government agencies. And that's when I started working at the Department of Defense. So that's when I knew that I really like, okay, I enjoyed national security, my exposure to DOD, to the military, to thinking, uh, you know, strategically, understanding, uh, just being exposed to strategy, operations, operational concepts, tactics, and that's kind of, you know, what what launched me. Um, I found that I enjoyed it. I enjoyed thinking about it. I had taken some classes, obviously, as an undergraduate, but it's different when you're in the midst of it. And you also learn a lot from people around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really so much of my, my learning and education has come from being around smart people like you, Cliff, and your colleagues and others, um, listening to them, reading what they suggest, and just, you know, growing, uh, growing um, intellectually. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I did a lot more of that later in my life than than during my formal education in many ways. And I've got to ask, tell tell us some tales out of school um, in the Trump administration. What was it like to formulate strategy in the Trump White House? And I'll just add this, that I, I think the general perception would be must be tough to do under President Trump. One doesn't necessarily see him as a strategic thinker. On the other hand, you were working with some first-rate minds at that point. I'm thinking of H.R. McMaster and Mike Pottinger and Mike Pompeo. So just give us a sense of what it was was like for you at the White House. You know, lots of people, I get asked that question, and (laughs) I always sort of say, look, I had the best job in the world for that period of time. I was really, really lucky um, to be able to take all of these really important ideas uh, that were percolating at the time 
but had been for many, many years, and to architect them and put them into place to essentially say, we as a country need to drive in a different strategic direction. And Cliff, you know, a lot of that was Trump himself. So, you know, I'm going to, you know, people, you know, depending on where you're coming from, um, it has to be acknowledged. He was a disruptive president at the right time. And when I was there, the ideas of sovereignty, the ideas of caring about American sovereignty, the ideas about reciprocity and looking at trade in a different way, thinking about globalization differently, building up our military, caring about, uh, you know, our our, our border um you know, being tougher on our allies to say, hey, you need to have an investment in this, too. Uh, all of those things are very Trump, <laughs> Trumpy ideas, and they're all captured in the strategy. So um, it wasn't a really tough job in that sense. It was a great job because it was an opportunity to bring to the fore so much of what so many smart people had been thinking and talking about in Washington for a long time, including you and many of your colleagues. I mean, the Abraham Accords were critical. And not only that, you could even argue that part of the reason we've, we've seen the disaster that we've seen unfold and the, and the horrific tragedy of October 7th was because we were seeing a shift in how Arab nations like Saudi Arabia were beginning to think about Israel. So that's to say that it was an exciting time. There was a lot of good and a lot of opportunity to do good. And I was given a lot of autonomy um, which allowed um, my team to pull something together in eight or nine months, which also really hadn't been done before. So I'll stop there. And it, well, yeah, and it, I mean, I, I remember it, read it carefully. I think I actually had a chance to talk to you about it. A little. It's very coherent. It was a very coherent strategy. It was a real strategy and a real vision for what the U.S. should be. Um, would you say that President Biden rejected most of it, all of it? has kept some of it. How would you, what would you say? Is that, I don't know, how would you characterize where, where, I mean, Biden certainly wanted to distance himself from Trump in every way, in almost every way he could. I guess the one place that's not true is when he left Afghanistan, withdrew from Afghanistan, capitulated, I would say, to the Taliban in Afghanistan. He said, well, I kind of had to do this because, you know, you know, Trump made the agreement. What could I do? I don't know. Give me, give me whatever thoughts you want on this subject. I mean, I think the Biden administration kept the core competition with China, right? It, it and, and many people know this, or you know, it continued. It it identified China as a strategic um, adversary, uh, competitor, as the most consequential strategic competitor we face. So, in that sense, that core, which is very, very important, the Biden administration reiterated. But fundamentally. There are differences in many of the assumptions. Uh, so I do think there are big differences in the way the Biden administration sees the world. Um, in 2017, we used a term that was actually one of the few terms I got pushback on from the external bureaucracy is, you know, power is is unchanging in the world. I have to actually find the term. I said something like power is central, uh, mm -hmm. central to the way the world works. And there was a lot of pushback on that point. So I don't think the Biden administration sees those a lot of the assumptions. Well, that's very important because I, I, I mean, I think this is a, a big divide among, I guess we call strategic thinkers, whether hard power and the perception of the part of your adversaries that you have hard power capabilities that are fearsome and awesome um, and the will and determination to use it, whether that's absolutely essential. I would say it is. And I would say that if you take that power and determination, and this is an FDD 
uh, kind of meme, um, that adds up to deterrence. Without that, you do not have deterrence. And whether instead you can believe, as I think a lot of Europeans do, that you know, you can have soft power and diplomatic solutions and win-win win-win outcomes. And 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 I think all that has been tested and proven to be false, I guess I would say. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, I had I found the line, um, it's on page 25 of the actual print strategy, which is somewhere online. And it says, I like it because it's straightforward. A central continuity in history is the contest for power. The present time period is no different. Yeah, and that yeah. is an assumption that I don't think the Biden administration holds. Um, I think there are differences in the assumption of the importance of sovereignty. We're seeing that now with our open, open border. Um, climate has a central role um, in the Biden strategy. It did not in the Trump strategy. No. Uh, so I think there are some, you know, very different assumptions that underpin the t- the two strategies. Um, and in addition, I think you see a, a very uh, sort of aggressive. Um, domestic agenda in the Biden strategy that in many ways is just is, you know, is not in the U.S. best interest abroad. I'll put it at that way (laughs) of advancing some of that agenda. Yeah. Do you think it's true and or useful to think of the current period as a sort of Cold War 2.0? And as you probably know, H.R. McMaster and uh, and I think Matt Pottinger and certainly the historian Neil Ferguson have, have all said, yeah, I think they have all bought in on that. That perception, not that it's identical, but, you know, cold wars are not necessarily identical anymore than hot wars are identical. But to understand that we've got that kind of challenge as we did, only it's it's a it's a greater challenge because uh, under Xi Jinping, China is stronger militarily and economically than the Soviet Union ever was. And uh, he has with, you know, in this kind of axis of authoritarians or revisionists or tyrannies, whatever you want to call it. You know, he's got Moscow, he's got Tehran, he's got Cuba, he's got Nicaragua, he's got North Korea, he's got uh, Venezuela, and increasing number of African countries as well. I, I'm interested in your take on Cold War 2.0. Yeah, I've, I've thought about this. I, I I do think it has some value to apply that analogy. Um, I think there is a long-term ideological competition at the core of, of what we're seeing, a pushback against capitalism, about liberal democracy. So there's an ideological component. There's a sense that um, Americans as a whole should care about this, uh, you know, a broad sense of the instruments of power needed um, to compete in, in this period. And that's something the Cold War, um, you know, was, was central to the Cold War as well. But I think there are also some limitations and all of the people you mentioned have, have cited this. So this is not, you know, this is not a new idea. But the nature of the intertwined economies between the U.S. and China is a critical difference and presents really different problem sets than we faced during the Cold War. I mean, dramatically different. So sometimes um, I wonder if I think still a lot of the American business community uh, is uncomfortable with the idea of war, (laughs) of saying Mm. we're in some form of Mm. a war with mm. China, right? So that creates some discomfort and does that create the outcomes we need? So there are some big differences, the main one being this economic interdependence and how to handle it, that the Cold War did not, in my view, provide a model for what we need to do today. I just add this, that yeah, I think you're right about the discomfort that using that kind of language is like to elicit from the business community. But I also felt intense discomfort, I don't think I'm alone in this, when during the summit meeting in San Francisco recently, you had businessmen paying thousands of dollars to sit at the table of Xi Jinping and then giving him a standing ovation. 
that struck me. That made me very uncomfortable at a time when we know that the, the Communist Party, the ruling Communist Party of China, has stripped Hong Kong of the rights of Hong Kong. Hong Kongers have been promised under a treaty at the time when Jimmy Lai, British citizen, freedom fighter, is sitting in a jail cell, a time when the the Uyghurs of Xinjiang or East Turkestan, as they call it, are being persecuted to the point where the U.S. government calls it genocide. That's not a time to stand up and applaud for, for, the, for the Communist Party ruler, it seems to me. Uh, for capitalists to do that strikes me as kind of as astonishing and distressing. Yeah, no, it, it was extremely distressing. And Jimmy Lai is not just in a jail cell. I mean, you know, he's in solitary confinement. I think he's in his late 70s. Yeah. Solitary confinement for 23 hours a day or something like that. It's just, it's shocking. I mean, there's yeah. e- even the way he's being treated. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's very disturbing. And it actually, I, I feel like sort of re- reaffirms the point that they're really uncomfortable in thinking about this as, as any any kind of hostile or, or war type situation. Um and yeah, it, it, it was it was very disturbing and also inconsistent in the way that national security laws in China are being applied to many members of the business community who are mm. living and working in China and who might not be able to leave the country, um, who have been jailed, uh, you know, Japanese businessmen for a, a while, Canadians. So it, it's it's inconsistent and, and bizarre. All right, I'm an old newsman, so let's get to some of the news. Your most recent op-ed, I think, I think it's most recent in the Telegraph, British publication, is headline: "Biden's Ukraine aid battle is a blessing in disguise." And maybe you should explain that because it seems like a pretty good disguise. Well, first, I don't. I, as as any as any writer knows, especially those who do op-eds, and maybe you, is you never get to choose the, the title, right? So the, the title comes out, and sometimes <laughs> I'm like, wait. I didn't really mean that. Or, or I always suggest my titles, my head. I always do it. Usually, it's accepted. I have to. I just throw that out for you. My, my, I, I, mine, or, mine or not. Um, All right. Often, although I didn't, I should have suggested one for this. Well, what what the piece says um, is essentially that this is an opportunity. I actually, and I knew that I'd probably have some pushback from from um, my friends on the Republican side of the uh, of the aisle, or or it, it depends from where you're you're coming from. Yeah. Um, Basically, my point is that it is not inconsistent to argue that we should care about the sovereignty of Ukraine and care about the sovereignty of our southern border. And right. so um, whether, you know, wherever you are on these issues, it is not an inconsistent argument. So I'm simply pointing out that I understand, um, you know, my Republican friends on the Hill who are making or who are making that linkage. And um, it's to a degree, it's a fair linkage. It's an intellectually consistent linkage. Um, and it's one uh, that if Biden was serious about what he wanted to do, he could address it. He could rectify this problem. He could ta- have a sensible policy on the southern border, which his own Democratic mayors want and big parts of the Democratic Party want. But instead, um, he's not. This is an opportunity for him to actually do the right thing on the border, stop the humanitarian and national security disaster there and um, play politics on the Hill, which is what the Hill is about, and 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 push through um, additional aid for Ukraine. I No, I'm not going to push back at all on this. I totally agree. You know, I did a little time in my checkered career as a political operative. And if you're, you know, if you're, uh, uh, say, a House member, and you go back to your constituents, and then they say to you, look, I'm not against you helping Ukraine. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. Probably they're not. Um, I, you know, They've had invaders coming over their border and to conquer them. I get that. But we have a but people are coming over our border by the millions 
And didn't I elect you to do something about that? And shouldn't you try? And they can't just say, yeah, well, Biden doesn't want to. So what do you want me to do? I can. So I'm not I, I, I'm not enthusiastic that aid for Ukraine as we've discussed this, and we're discussing this a couple of days before Christmas, uh, that aid for Ukraine and Israel is being held up. But I also understand you don't take the politics out of politics. And the, and there and, and uh, there are a lot of members uh, of Congress saying, this is our one chance to get Biden to do something to begin to secure the southern border, which has, which has been totally open for the, since he came into office. And he and, uh, and his Homeland Security Secretary Refuse even to admit that. They say, no, it's secure. No, it's fine. No, it's Congress's fault. They have to pass comprehensive. None of that's true because we had reasonably good border security under President Trump. And actually, under President Obama, it wasn't like this. I don't really understand what Biden's thinking is, why he why he would want, want an open border, why he thinks that's good. As you say, even at a time when Democratic mayors are saying, hey, you're overwhelming our cities. We, are, we have all these people we have to take care of. They can't work because we don't have it set up for them to work. Most of them want to work, and we don't. But and there's a small percentage I fear that are gang members, maybe terrorists. Who knows what? Because they're coming from all around the world. I don't understand Biden's thinking on this. Do you? Uh, I don't. But I think the question needs to be asked consistently and regularly of the simple question: Why wouldn't you take this opportunity? to yeah. do the right thing uh, for humanitarian and national security reasons on the border. Why? And the Customs and Border Control statistics on this are are remarkably transparent. I don't even think uh, the Homeland Security Secretary realizes how good his website is on this. It's actually all there. You can see how many people and the differences from 2017 until the present period, something like an 800% difference. So, I mean, the numbers are all there. It's all documented. It's quite clear. And close to 300 individuals on the terrorist watch list yeah. have come over just in the past, I think, two years or so. So the numbers are there. It's 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 there consistently. And and um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think what's interesting is if you watch the news, if you watch MSNBC, um, you know, other stations, the only station uh, that really covers this on sort of the regular TV is, is Fox. The yeah. news is entirely different about the border, depending on on what you're what you're watching. So um, it's a choice that he could make. It's a it's it's one that's relatively easy. Why isn't he making the choice? He should be able to do that. That's all. That's the, the piece just argued. This is an opportunity. He should take it and he can get two good things, better border security and aid for Ukraine and Israel. And he can say to the far left who want an open border policy for their own ideological reasons, hey, I had to. I mean, I got pushed right. and I need, you know, and I believe and I hope you believe that we need to support Ukraine. The far left probably doesn't want to support Israel, but that's another story. Yeah. By the way, you make the broader point in your piece. I think it's just a very good point. What a strategic point. I'm going to quote you. A central element of a state's power, as well as the perception of its power. Have always been tied to a state's ability to control and defend its territorial integrity. America's failure to control its southern border has direct national security implications. And not only for the U.S. homeland, the perception of weakness is already emboldening enemies and adversaries from terrorists to the Chinese Communist Party. And I think we see that in all sorts of ways, not least the Houthis. Who the hell are the Houthis <laughs> to say, hey, you know, we're going to we're going to close down international waterways and see what you can do about it, guys. And we and, and I think our posture there so far, maybe it'll change over the next few days, has been defensive, not offensive, not saying you do this and you're going to be so sorry. And by the way, your masters in Tehran, 
they're going to pay a severe price. I, th- I think this fear of escalation and fear of provocation means we end up seeming weak. And this gets back to your whole thesis about who has the power, who's the strong horse. That is still the basis of, 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 of strategy in, in the real world. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, sovereignty has had a bad name over over the years, not not with me and not <laughs> with many, because it's a sense that it equates to nationalism, which often has a bad connotation. And it equates to ideas like don't cooperate, you know, with others when in fact, you know, it's it's the flip side. Um, sovereignty recognizes realities. I think what we're seeing in Europe now with with also mass um you know, mass mass immigration and the problems it's causing. Um, you're seeing a pushback now. You're seeing different European, you know, you're seeing European leaders be elected more, you know, so-called populist leaders. You're seeing a pushback when people are just reasonably saying, how is my culture changing? Uh, how is my country changing? Um, what do we, you know, how, how do we think about trade? How do we think about jobs? These are legitimate concerns of people. Um, so I think we, we need to sort of, we need to readjust and at the same time, um, you know, we need to readjust in in those domains. That doesn't mean we don't cooperate with allies and partners. It doesn't mean we think about sense. It doesn't mean we don't think about sensible trade policies, sensible humane uh, immigration policies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's nothing wrong with also acknowledging that borders have a role. Right, and I maybe I should say I, I'm in favor of immigration, but I want controlled immigration. Yeah. I want people vetted. I want to know who's coming in. I think there are ways to make sure people coming in do have jobs quickly so they are not breaking the back of the welfare system. Uh, make sure that those coming in are not terrorists or not uh, gang members. You can do that, but you have to but you have to then be able to vet everybody and that that requires securing your your border and legal is, uh, diversified immigration, yeah. right? Obviously, I'm I, you know, my mom's Italian. I'm happy. <laughs> I love immigrants and we're Right. No, we need immigrants. Yeah, I think we, we need the country needs immigrants. No, no question about it. But anyhow, all right. Listen, another op-ed I wanted to bring up because I, I, I read it with with interest and, and great respect. It was in the Wall Street Journal, and you observe the world is becoming increasingly chaotic. I think that's certainly true at, at this point, um, and has over the past year or so. Maybe we'll get back to the past year. You called that chaos a direct consequence of America's failure to deter Russia, Iran, and China, which I said called the uh, this this axis of uh, of tyrannies. So the my question is, why have we failed to deter? Why are we failing to deter? And more importantly, how if we? I mean, how do we get our mojo back on deterrence? Well, I think in in that piece, I also try to argue that what happens in regions of the world matters, and so. Um, I always push back against this idea uh, against the term global, because Mm. what does it really mean? Mm. So the piece essentially tries to argue that what happens um, in regions of the world are the foundations of power. And we need to care about what happens in, in Europe in the Middle East, because they do have implications for what happens then, then in Asia. So power sort of is, is reduced down to that lower level of, of regional power. I think that's a more useful and operational frame than global power. What happens in the regions uh, matters. That's where you see uh, military forces deployed or not deployed. That's where you see activities in in oceans. That's where uh, you see uh, regional economic trade, all of those things. So in that piece, I essentially just argue that um, as we saw deterrence fail in Europe, uh, we saw it fail in the Middle East. 
it likely will have an implication and is sending signals uh, to China too in Asia, in East Asia. Um, so that's what I try to, to argue in that piece. It's really hard to restore deterrence. So I think, you know, at the end at the end of this discussion, um, you know, not to preempt that, but uh, one of the things that uh, I was thinking about and how, you know, what did I learn from 2023 is that once you um, are, once you lose the ability to deter or have lost it, it's just very hard to restore it. And you almost have to overcompensate in some ways, which is part of the problem. Um, I mean, I think what I've learned from Brad Bowman, who heads our military center, Major McMaster is the chairman there, is if you want to establish deterrence, it requires two things. It requires that your adversaries perceive your capabilities as fearsome and awesome. And we should be building, I mean, we have, we still have pretty good capabilities, but not what they should be and not advancing at the pace I think that they should be. In addition to capabilities, there's the question of will. They have to see that you're determined, that you're a bulldog, that you really, and again, the way you do that is by utilizing those capabilities and, and saying, you know, you hurt us, we hurt you worse. If you come back, It'll get much worse for you again. That's how you re that's how you establish or reestablish deterrence. I think right now it appears that almost everybody, including the Houthis, can deter us if they and uh, and that's more a matter of will than than capabilities. Um, so I, this, this, if if the Biden administration wanted to reestablish deterrence, I think it could do so. But 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 uh, there are things that but it's not taking the steps to do to do that yet. This is my perception. Yeah, I mean, I think we're mixed on capabilities. I mean, we have a lot of capabilities, but I think we've also seen problems in our industrial base and the ability to resupply, right? So that capability is is it's it's a problem, right? Adversaries see that and say, okay, well, we really can't sustain. Uh, if we had to, we can't sustain conflict for long periods of time. So cap the capability mix is is you know there's a question mark, and we're definitely mixed on will as well. I mean, to your point about the Houthis right now, I mean, there are probably things we could do, pretty strong things, <laughs> right? Um, this is not this is a, a a force that we should have the capabilities to do something about about what's going on there. So I think in both areas, um, you know, it's decidedly mixed, which does not bode well uh, for, for deterrence and for rebuilding and restoring what we need to deter. And you know, I just point out it was it was not so long ago that we were being told, but at least by the UN. That the situation in Yemen was one of the worst, maybe the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. People didn't have food. They didn't have medicines. How interesting that they have plenty of missiles and drones and helicopters to uh, to, to to hijack ships and take and take them in. All that they have, and of course, the reason they have all that is because they're getting it from one place, and that's the Islamic Republic of Iran, which. I also would point out when the Biden administration came in, what did they have maybe five billion dollars in, in in foreign currency reserves. I mean, they were the, 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 economically the back of the Islamic Republic of Iran was pretty much broken. I think today they have over fifty billion. My numbers may not be exact um, because we have not enforced sanctions that allowed them to sell oil at higher prices. Um, some of the the money that the Biden administration has tried to use to, I think, bribe them uh, has has been blocked, but but not all. But again, it's a matter of they're not afraid of us. They think we're afraid of them. And that perception may be correct. Right. I mean, the willingness to essentially make that deal uh, was just enough to show where our will was or wasn't. Right. So whether or not the money was actually released or where it is, the status of it now, the initial willingness to make that deal um, creates a, a perception, a legitimate perception of, of a lack, a lack of will. Now, 
I just want to come back to your point about regional power and and region thinking regionally rather than globally. I suppose if uh, Barack Obama were sitting here, he'd say, "Well, Nadia, that's exactly what I did, isn't it? I mean, my conception was um, that we could mollify um, Iran's rulers, um, that we could respect, show respect for them, uh, that we could understand they have equities in that region." Um, and you know, I had the idea. Obama might say that they should share the neighborhood, share the neighborhood with the Saudis in particular. If everybody would share the neighborhood, wouldn't that be the right, the, the right approach to regional peace and stability? And wouldn't everybody want to go along? And I just say, from from my point of view, this idea of share the neighborhood as a as a strategic doctrine is less von Clausewitz than it is Mister Rogers. Well. He was thinking regionally, but he was just thinking the wrong things regionally. So like the frame is, yeah, I mean, the the regional frame is not the wrong frame, but what you do in in the region matters. And so his sets of policies were the wrong policies because they ended up re-empowering Iran and actually creating a regional imbalance. And and it was uh, those sets of policies which the Biden administration continued, continued, you know, turning uh, turning their back initially to to the Saudis, um, not seeing the balance and the the balance of power plays within the region that needed to be done. So it was just that, yeah, he might have been thinking regionally, um, but it was just the wrong the wrong sets of activities and within the region. You know, when I think of this uh, axis of Moscow, Beijing, and Tehran, uh, the interesting thing is the the, 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 the Chinese rulers are communist. Putin, I would say, is a neo-imperialist. And of course, uh, Ali Khamenei is uh, an Islamist and a jihadist. And those things are not necessarily not necessarily uh, synonymous. But I, unless you, I don't need to get into that now. Anyhow, all, so they're very different ideologies that are coming from. What they have in common, it seems to me, and this is, I think, important to recognize, and that you have, is that they all say, okay, what we have in common is we all want to diminish or defeat the United States. And we all want to replace, and this is something that people, I know their eyes glaze over when I say this, but after World War II, you know, there was a sense uh, among Western leaders, among Americans, allies, okay, we need a new strategic vision. We need a different international world order. There's always going to be some world order. You can't get away from that. So that meant the American-led liberals, rules-based world order. And I think that if you, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, Ali Khamenei all say, yeah, we want to replace that with one in which we make the rules and it's distinctly illiberal and America follows or declines uh, under this 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 world order. And I think this is a hard, hard thing for people to understand maybe, but I think it's important to understand. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, the United States has benefited from an order which we helped to build and which we fundamentally led. That has benefited Americans um, for, for over 100 years, I would say. That doesn't mean we have to rebuild or should rebuild in the same way. We have seen over the past month, two months, the fundamental corruption of so many international organizations. Mm. We should not be rebuilding those organizations. We should not be giving them more money. We should be thinking about an order, sets of rules, policies, processes that create outcomes that are good for the United States. Um, So it doesn't mean re-empowering these fundamentally corrupt bodies. I don't think we should. I don't think they can change. Just when we saw they might change, we saw, in fact, 
They can't change. They just cannot change. I was just, you know, reading about the International Committee of the Red Cross, and it, we give them something like $600 million a year. That's a lot. A lot for them not to be in the lead on calling and demanding for, uh, you know, seeing, having access to the hostages, you know, in Gaza. That's just, yeah. that's pretty simple. Just call for that outright. Demand it. Yeah. doesn't mean you can't care about other, uh, you know, human, humanitarian tragedies unfolding. You can do both. I mean, that's just one example. No, it's a good example. And, and by the way, they say, well, it wouldn't help. Well, it might not, but it would make, but it would make a statement. And, and so you get turned down by Hamas. Okay, so what? How has that changed the situation for the worse? Right. There's a lot of rhetoric that doesn't help. That doesn't stop everyone yeah. from just <laughs> saying a lot of things all the time. I don't mean that as being rhetoric. You need to call for access to the hostages to check on their health and their their well-being. That's not rhetoric. My point is is saying that there are a lot of things that people say and try, and it doesn't always work. But it's worth saying and trying. A hundred percent. I know. I, I I totally get that. It's, it's you're taking a stand. You're saying. Hey, you could say we're the Red Cross. It's our job to see all the vic- all all the victims, right? right. And, we're, and we're asking Hamas. We're demanding that Hamas let us do that. If they won't, they hey, so what? You've at least said it uh, appropriately, as opposed to saying we have demands to make of the Israelis, but no demands to make of Hamas. Well, what is that? What's the message that sends? The message that that sends is is you've been is you're acquiescing to terrorists. And I mean, to go back, we started on this conversation because um, you know there are many who believe that we shouldn't care about the order, we shouldn't care about the broader architecture um, in which America fits and in which we lead. And I think that that is short-sighted. And over time, um, the, the the dismantling of, of, of um, an architecture that is good for the United States will harm us. And I, I'm saying that liberally. I didn't use the dismantling of the liberal world order. I mm. used the dismantling of an architecture uh, that is beneficial to the United States because these terms are loaded and all sides are just constantly throwing them at each other. <laughs> the, the, look, the, in terms of the architecture of this world order, it was the, the, the biggest and most important structure is meant to be the UN. And the UN is so perverted at this point. What do we do about, about the UN? And it's the, it, the State Department, most presidencies, um, although I give a lot of credit to uh, to Nikki Haley under, under Trump, uh, and Congress has not wanted to say, oh, you know what, let's let's cut down the money we give to these to, 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 to the United Nations and to the various organizations that are working against American interests and values. It's been very hard to get anybody to, to say that. But what do we do about the UN, I guess, is my question. I don't see a healthy order with the UN being at the center of it. So, I mean, I think that we... Um, we need to demand outcomes, right? And and not focus on processes and a constant series of discussions and look at what many of the UN's longstanding projects have actually resulted in. If you look at the UN, you know, uh, the Human Rights Commission, but also refugees, right. also right. Um, in, in terms of climate, if you go back and look yeah. at what the COP, the, 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 the climate um, processes for 20 years have <laughs> 20 years of an existential threat, that's a that's an oxymoron, right? It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work. So clearly the apparatus, the approaches, the ability to implement are seriously flawed. And if you actually care about um, the issues, then you should care about the out- outcomes and you should demand much more on the outcome side. So it's fine to discuss things at the UN. It's fine to create a forum for exchange of information, all of those things. But the mistake is relying on it for um, implementation in many, many areas. Like 
I, I know there, I'm sure uh, there are good things that are done in terms of humanitarian assistance in many ways, emergency assistance in many ways. But there is the bigger, look, I'm a principal conservative with a small C. I believe in when you can solve problems at the lowest possible level, that's when you're actually going to get things done. The UN is sort of the opposite of that. I think the principle is subsidiarity. I think mm-hmm. my my um my friend Jakob Griegel has written about this as well. He's a, he's a great uh, intellectual uh, scholar and, and friend of mine. And I learned about that from him over the years. So the UN is sort of the opposite of that. <laughs> so how can we work um, at building coalitions, smaller levels, problem-oriented to fix them? All right. Last question for today. We're at the end of the year, last podcast of the year. <laughs> Are there lessons of 2023 specifically oh, that we should have learned, the administration should have learned, Congress should have learned, our listeners should have learned. All right. I can't just talk about what I'm binge watching on on, on TV. You can. You can do that, too. I mean, I'm curious to know. What, what do you like? I'll do that at the end. I've been watching what lots of people have, Slow Horses, uh, which is a great MI5. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. UK it's drama. good. You like it? It's, it's, yeah, it? It's, it's great. You need subtitles because, you know, the, the light, I mean, the, you know, you just I you always know, need subtitles. Need subtitles to but, it, but it's great. It's great. But you have to pay attention. It's it's quite intricate. Um, I mean, I think great lessons. We've talked about them uh, in some ways, the lessons of 2023 over the course of the conversation, you know, politically, diplomatically, um, thinking about these new architectures in, in different ways because of the we've seen we've seen the problems over the past few months. Uh, we just can't continue to rely on these organizations that are that haven't made progress in some of these perpetual problems. Um, you know, sovereignty matters, borders matter, uh, don't confuse processes with outcomes. On the military side, we've seen that mass matters still. And relative to that, we've tended to undervalue it, uh, both the production of it and the sustainment of it. Um, we've seen, you know, people have been right over the years, this man-machine combinations of looking at how the Ukrainians have used, you know, uh, drones in, in in sophisticated and different ways and sort of the integration of technology and soldiers using those technologies. And that's something that has been pointed out for years um, by strategists and defense experts. And, and that that will continue. We've, we've seen that the losing deterrence or loss of it is much harder. Um, it's very hard to regain once you do that. And so we should be thinking about that going forward. Uh, meaning, I think on the economic side, we have seen... Um, a reaffirmation uh, that the playing field is not level and hasn't been level for a long time. And we should continue to demand, you know, reciprocity. We're seeing a reordering of trade, which is unfolding. Um, we're seeing that industrial policy is hard. I don't like the term, um, but just because we've passed the CHIPS Act and things like that uh, doesn't mean that we're actually um, doing things differently. We are doing some things differently, but now the key is implementation. The key is when are the new chips factories going to be built? The key is are we going to make tough trade-offs in letting um, you know new mines or new mineral processing facilities be built here, or or as opposed to being dependent um, for a long, long time on other countries like China for critical minerals. So, I think we've seen a we've seen a lot of things in 2023. I think the key is to now look forward, look at look at implementation. Um, make it easier for Americans to understand where their money is being spent, where are these government programs and policies, how they're unfolding. Um, that's what we should we should strive to do. I'm glad I asked. 
<laughs> Lots of you there that we could unpack, but I think I'll be respectful of your time today. I'll let you start your weekend. Nadia Shavu, thanks so much for being with us today. And again, think about what restaurant you want yeah, to go to. Yeah, I, I definitely will. <laughs> Maybe I like Italian. I, <laughs> I, I think, I think we're going to have to do Italian, but it's going to have to be good Italian. Stuff. Absolutely. It's <laughs> got to be really good Italian. All right. Thank you so much, Cliff, and Happy Bye. New Year. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas, Nadia. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of you who have been with us today for this episode of Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.